episode 388, Meryl Guzner on the future of healthcare and glide paths to get there. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I have Meryl Guzner on the show talking about his prognostications for the future of healthcare in this country and how realistically it could be engineered so that the healthcare industry right sizes itself relative to our GDP. Meryl offers three glide paths to this end. Okay. So let's break this down some. First, Merrill talks about the full impact of huge numbers of patients slash people in this country who are scared to seek medical attention. They are afraid to play the game at the end when the bill comes in the mail and they open it up having no idea what it is going to be. It is a magical mystery guessing game of luck and chance where losers go bankrupt. This is not a victimless situation we have going on here in this country. All these deaths of despair and life expectancy going down, this is unprecedented. So now we're level set on the stakes. Interestingly, Merrill plots out the aspiration for healthcare spending in exactly the same way that David Muelstein did in episode 364. The goal, according to both of them, isn't to reduce healthcare spending per se. That would be nigh near impossible to pull off in the real world, but we could work on holding healthcare cost increases below the rate of GDP growth. Optimal might be healthcare costing, say, 13% of GDP like it does in Switzerland instead of upwards of 20%, one out of $5 getting stuffed in the pockets of a healthcare entity or their shareholders. 50% of that, by the way, is being paid for by the government. The other 50% largely coming out of the wages of employees, either directly or indirectly. Okay, so what is the lightning in the bottle moment where we clip in for this journey toward right-sizing healthcare prices? Merrill says it's a combo of patients and employers and taxpayers crying uncle at the same time that technology and new competitors move in on the supply side and start to chip away at older incumbents like hospitals, especially hospitals, who have broken their social contracts with their communities. And there I'm paraphrasing some terminology Dr. Vikas Sani uses in an upcoming episode on hospitals and their embarrassing levels of charity care. So it's harnessing forces on the demand side of the equation and on the payment side of the equation, coupled with goings on on the supply side. So with all of this going on, Merrill says that in this crucible of transformation, we could get better care for lower costs. To accomplish that, he says step one is for the team for healthcare costs going down, <laughs> employers, taxpayers, government policymakers, gang up, create a value alliance and work together. These allies then tell the healthcare industry, look gang, ixnay on the growth rates you've been accustomed to in the past, period. You are going to need to deal with that. So get used to it. That is kind of where all of this starts. Merrill mentions three glide paths that will help us get from here to there. And he names the three. Number one, accountable care, essentially putting providers at risk, giving them budgets that they are responsible to work within. Number two, paying for value. We have PCPs who deliver a lot of value. We should pay them more. 
We should also put docs on salary like they do on Mayo and some of these other leading centers of excellence. That's Merrill's number two suggestion. And then number three is all-payer pricing, which we do get into. They have this now in Maryland. It's basically when everybody pays the same price for the same service. Merrill says this all kind of rolls up into removing the incentives that rewards low-value care that can be really expensive. I'm paraphrasing here. I'm sure for many of you, Merrill Guzner needs no introduction. He's been the editor-in-chief of Modern Healthcare. He wrote a book on the drug industry. He was a reporter for many years before that and also did public interest work. Before we continue, I just want to have one listener shout out, and that is to Dr. Hugh Sims. Not only did Dr. Sims leave a really heartwarming tip in the tip jar the other day, but I have had so many lovely conversations with him over email regarding the good, the bad, and the ugly relative to being a doctor in today's healthcare environment. Thanks for all of your help and ideas and insights over the years, and also thanks for everything that you do for patients. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Meryl Guzner, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Nice to be here. So let me ask you this, Meryl. If we're thinking about the overall impact of all of the various factors going on right now, and also not forgetting about the financial toxicity, which is rampant in this country today with patients, the total volume of healthcare utilization is decreasing, question mark, permanently. We had Wayne Jenkins on from Centivo, who they did a whole survey where they showed that patients are not seeking medical care that they may or may not need because they're worried about the price, right? So we have patients who are suffering under the weight of all these prices, either directly because they've got a huge deductible or large out-of-pockets, or their premiums are just getting so high or a combination thereof, right? So you've got patients in dire straits here in, in certain cases choosing between groceries and paying their medical bill. So that's one pain point that we're factoring in. Meanwhile, you have these large payers who have, let's just say, some self-interest here in not doing much. Then you've got the plan sponsors themselves, many of whom, and there's like a running joke in the industry that employers have so much latent power that they are just completely not using for pick any reason. Where does this all end up? You know, like, do you have any prognostications? How do all these forces wind up colliding? You raised a number of issues here. Let me start with the first part. You talked about people not using health care. The rise of the high deductible plan, and I don't have the percentage of number of people who have $1,000 or $1,200, I forget where you draw the line now, but when you have 50% of the people in this country who tell survey takers they couldn't afford a $400 bill for anything, and if you're in a high deductible plan where the first $1,000 of a hospitalization is going to cost you $1,000, you have a pretty large incentive to cut back on something that might be in your own mind, discretionary. I have chest pain. Should I go to the emergency room? My knee hurts. Should I get a knee operation? I This thing's growing on my arm. I don't know if it's skin cancer or not, but if I go to the doctor, I'm going to be $600 in the hole. That is having an effect on the nation's health. And I want to drop back just for a second to point out what is one of the big issues that is not being discussed in America today. That our life expectancy is declining, and we are the only advanced industrial country in the world where this is happening. And there's a lot of contributors to this. And I'm not blaming the lack of health care on it by any stretch of the imagination. But I think it is a primarily, but it is a contributing factor. 
if you postpone care for things that are necessary, you're going to have a long-term impact on the health of this country. And long-term, that has a huge impact on both our national well-being, our sense of ourselves as a people, the productivity of the workforce. So I think we need to be concerned about that. I do think we are in a secular period right now. So you add on to this with another trend that's going on in the delivery of healthcare, which is the movement of care out of the hospital into outpatient settings and the movement out of outpatient into at-home potentially, treatment for things that used to be done in hospitals or in large, well-capitalized clinics and places where procedures get done. Therefore, I think the hospital sector is, in this coming decade, is in for a kind of reckoning, a tipping point, if you will, where these trends in utilization are going to affect need for the size of the hospitals we have, what they're actually doing within them, and ultimately on the revenue and price of of the services they are delivering. I think employers are also, you mentioned this, and this was the second part of your question, employers are increasingly activated around these issues. And I think that these two forces are going to the increased activism on the payer side, meaning the employer side and the government side, and the trends within healthcare, both from a technological point of view and a healthcare delivery point of view, but also with coupled with the payer side that put people in these high deductible plans, we're going to see a diminution of utilization. And I think the big challenge to how do you take those two trends that we're going to see and make them work in such a way that it actually delivers better healthcare and better health, the outcomes for the American people. And I think that's the challenge that we all face in the coming decade. We have patients fearing a trip to a healthcare facility, not because the procedure might hurt, but because they're scared of the unknown nature of the bill that they might get afterwards. You have employers who, in some cases, not all cases, but we're starting to get a leading edge of employers getting activated on behalf of their employees. So couple that demand side change with some supply side goings on. Over there, we have care migrating out of hospitals and into ASCs, ambulatory surgical centers and into the home in some cases. We have technology that might further attenuate the need for a patient to find themselves on the campus at a hospital, right? People are also getting very wise to facility fees. So you have a lot of profitable service lines moving out of the hospital. What I understand the point you're making is, does this supply and demand curve now find a new and better equilibrium that it actually lowers prices without impacting the care that patients are receiving here? I guess in your opinion, what are the ways that this goes well? And then what are the pitfalls or what are the watchouts that we need to be aware of, which are going to indicate that the direction we're headed is not going to end in a good place? That's a difficult question because you're asking me about what I think is going to happen in the future. And as uh, Yogi Berra said, predictions are very hard, especially when you're talking about the future. The way I like to look at this issue is about what is sustainable and what is not sustainable. 
Over the last several decades, we've gone from healthcare representing about 13% of GDP, and now we're going back to the turn of the century, to today, it hit 20% during the pandemic, it's probably going to fall back to maybe 19 or 18%. But still, we're st talking about one in every $5 flowing through this economy being in the healthcare sector. This is at least 50, 60% more than any other country on earth largely a reflection of the prices we pay. And if you think that you can continue this trend and grow it to 21, 22, 24, 25%, which some long-term projections have showed, you have to think that this is simply not sustainable. You can't have this social, what is essentially a social service, end up becoming your entire economy or a, you, there's such a huge fraction of the economy. It takes money away from other kinds of investments, whether it's education or whether it's you know better housing or whether it's better roads and transportation system. These require massive investments themselves. And so we can't keep investing in healthcare. Not to mention when you can in healthcare is misnamed. It's sick care. We take care of the sick. If we go to two, 22 or 24 percent or 25 percent of GDP taking care of the sick, it tells us that the people of this country are not healthy, that something is wrong. And it's the other things that we need to be dealing with that are causing people to get sick, which gets to, I think, a fundamental thing that we rarely talk about when we talk about these high level health care issues. But we need to talk about more and more. And that is about who gets sick in this society and who gets sick in the society. Most of us don't die like you're alive today, you're dead tomorrow and you didn't incur any healthcare costs, that happens, but that's a small percentage. We have chronic disease epidemics in this country. And Angus Deaton and Andy Case, who wrote a whole book on this issue and gave a name for it, Deaths of Despair. If we don't deal with those social conditions, we will be driving more healthcare spending. So we actually need to hive off money from healthcare spending to go upstream to the causes of ill health in this society. If what we want to do is hold down our spending on healthcare, pricing is part of the problem, but volume is the other part. And volume is driven by ill health. There is waste, and we need to fight the issue of waste. But I would argue that it is ill health that is really driving utilization ultimately in whatever setting it is. When you ask about what's the tipping point, I think the tipping point comes when this is when the social forces, the political players, let's put it, let's put it in political terms. Employers are a political player in this country. Insurance companies are a political player. Hospitals are a political player. Doctors, every one of their specialty societies are political players. They have countervailing interests. They just want to pay less, and doctors and hospitals want to receive more. So therefore, they fight this out in the political realm in a variety of ways. And what we need is some overarching coalition of interested parties who want to say, no, what we need to do is they need we need a healthier population. We need to spend less on health care. And so therefore, what we need is to come up with reforms that provide glide paths for the self-interested players in the healthcare space, in the insurance space 
and the sub-players in the provider space, like the drug companies, like the medical device companies, like the imaging equipment manufacturers, and where we say, we're going to put you on a glide path where you know the future, but it's going to end up in this better place for the entire society, where what you have become accustomed to in the past in terms of growth and income is not what's going to be in your future. And I don't know how to put it any more plainly than that. You need to say, the world is going to change, you're going to change, and we're going to provide you a glide path where you still exist, but this is where you're going to end up because this is what we need as a society. So if we're speaking about these glide paths, as you called them, would you consider a glide path, like for example, CMS has put out multiple times that what their goal is to have every Medicare patient in a plan design model that includes providers taking some amount of risk by 2030. Traditional Medicare that we're talking about here. They also say what you want about Medicare Advantage. These are at-risk arrangements. So they're making it very clear, look, in the next eight years, this is where we're going to be. Is that an example of a glide path that you're talking about? Are you talking about something else? No, that's exactly right. We can, I can go far beyond that, but let's start with that one. So putting providers at risk, obviously, is saying, hey, we're going to give you a set amount of money and you're going to take care of these patients. Ultimately, that's what we do with insurance companies, right? That's the idea of insurance. Insurance is at risk, but insurers have this fail-safe mechanism where they can say, oh, by the way, if utilization or the prices went through the roof. Next year, I'm going to come back. You have a new rate and I'm going to make it up next year for what I lost last year. And so the insurance company theoretically is risk, but then they make it up by simply raising rates the year after to cover the losses that they experience should that happen. Putting providers at risk, that is one way of lowering your overall healthcare spending over time. So I think that there are a lot of reforms, potential reforms that are out there that could help the system move towards a better place where you're delivering better care at lower cost over time. Not that you say tomorrow you get minus 5%, but rather where you slow the rate of growth to where it's growing at a rate that's slower than the overall economy. I think that should be the goal. So where we get our overall spend on healthcare down to the, the top of the range of other countries, so we should be more like Switzerland, which maybe is 13. I think they're the second highest country, 13 or 14 percent. We shouldn't be 20 percent, 19 or 20 percent. Let's over time get it down by if the economy grows at 3 percent every year and healthcare only grows at 2 percent. And this is after inflation. So the numbers are actually higher if you include inflation in there. But if economic growth is three and we can grow healthcare at two over a decade's time, you'll be knocking a couple of percentage points over the overall spend on healthcare. And that's a glide path. It's a planned reduction in our overall spend that gives the system time to reorient its, its processes and payment policies so that we deliver better health for the American people for the money that we're spending. You know, David Muelstein in episode 364, he talks about this exact point. He talks about the idea of it being a generational goal to slow the rate of growth of healthcare to be less than the growth of GDP, which will get us back on track here. 
So if we're talking about these glide paths, just summing up, one is to make sure that we're paying for health and not sickness, that we're holding providers accountable to deliver better health, which by the way, you know, you've got examples of this happening right now. ChenMed, you've got Iora, you've got Vera Whole Health, you've got a number of these entities, Galileo, that are doing, based on all the metrics I've seen, a pretty good job there really improving the health of patients. Now, are they reducing costs? I don't know, question mark, based on some of their financial reports, but I think it's likely pretty clear that their patients are doing much better. Are there any other things that you have on your list of things we should do that are likely gonna happen? What else is on your list? One of the things that I think is very important to address is the entire issue of physician pay. We overpay specialists who deliver complicated and expensive procedures, the cardiovascular surgeons, the cardiologists, the orthopedic surgeons, the neurosurgeons, and some fields like renal, the renal physicians. And we pay them through fee-for-service in a variety, for the most part. We don't have them in value-based or risk-taking positions or on set budgets or even on bundled payments. There's a greater movement towards some of these things. It's still only happening at the margin. And as a result, we don't pay for the primary care who are the lowest paid physician, among the lowest paid physicians out there. We don't pay for primary care, preventive care. We don't pay for the kind of public health approaches to healthcare, where you go out into people's homes and you actually find people who are living lifestyles that are leading them to wind up in the hospital. Again, there's isolated examples of this where people are doing wonderful things, but we don't do this systematically. Right here in the city of Chicago, where I live, Mount Sinai Health, a small hospital system on the near southwest side, has people who go out into homes. They have young children who are showing up in the emergency room and sometimes being hospitalized for a day or two because they have such severe, every one of these visits is costing tens of thousands, $10,000. And so you go out into the home and you realize, oh my God, where's the building inspector? The place is filled with rat feces and roaches. Let's clean up the apartment. Some of them are living next to expressways and in the hot summer days, the windows are open because they don't have an air conditioner. You put an air conditioner in the house, you clean up the house, and all of a sudden, what you have is that you just saved $20,000 in emergency room visits in that particular home over the course of the year because they have an eight or nine or 10 year old kid who's being rushed to the hospital all the time for an asthma attack. And you, the fix up cost you $2,000 <laughs> or $3,000. It's cost effective to do these things from an overall perspective. And yet we don't invest in that. We don't invest in the primary care. So if we got every, you mentioned KenMed, Niora, and Oak Street Health here, which I think was started here in Chicago, but they're now nationwide. You, these are organizations that say, okay, give me a fixed budget for these people who are often are heavily utilizers or dual eligibles or they have a lot of conditions and they just, they look at issues like this. So they say, okay, let's make sure we're getting out there and make sure everybody who has untreated hypertension, which of course, if over a number of years leads to renal failure and ultimately on dialysis, or it leads to heart attacks and strokes. And we have a huge untreated, I think the numbers are like 25% of the population has poorly treated, untreated hypertension. 
The pills to deal with this are all generics. They cost pennies on the dollar. You just got to find out who they are and make sure they're taking their medication, get them on medication, and then make sure they're taking their medication. Again, reduced hospitalization could potentially more than pay for that kind of intensive care for people. And these new companies that are focusing on this have a business model that basically they're saying, yeah, we're going to be able to make money doing this because of the amount of care that we're spending on. Now, it's let's we have to wait a few more years because a lot of these companies are still losing money. And I don't know if it's because they're expanding so rapidly. I'm not a financial. I haven't looked in depth at the financials, but I think that they need to be asked, are they experiences showing that they'll be able to make money doing this? But I also, as implied by your question, am a, a believer that I think this model should be able to work. It has a really powerful logic behind it. And I am hopeful it will work because I dealing with people directly in a primary care setting, I believe, is the key to the future of healthcare. And having those people help manage those people's lives, their lives from a health perspective, and providing intensive support for that is the key to one of the keys to reducing long term healthcare spending in this country. Indeed. And as one data point, we just had one medical that had purchased Iora, which is one of these capitated, they have a capitated primary care model. So one medical publicly traded company released their earnings report. 51% of their revenue came from 5% of their patients. Guess which patients? Yes, the 5% of patients who are in the Iora side of the house there. You have 51% of One Medical's revenue coming from the model that you're just talking about, which just validates your point, right? It costs pennies, literally, to put somebody on the right hypertension medications, which will ultimately prevent strokes and all kinds of nasty downstream effects, right? If you can do that efficiently, make sure that everybody's on optimal medical therapy, make sure that, you know, the social drivers of bad health are taken into account. If you can do that efficiently, there's great benefit to patients. But then also, obviously, it's a pretty profitable endeavor if you can manage to do it well. A third glide path, which is something you've mentioned in an earlier conversation, you talked about going to a single price, meaning every payer pays the same price for a service. This is something that Maryland is doing right now with their all-payer pricing, where you don't have one carrier paying whatever, $500 for something and then some other payer paying $5,000 for the same thing that everybody has to pay one price. So if we're just going to take down just really quickly, right? Like you've got the pay for health, you've got the one payer price. Why do you think that all the payers paying the same price will actually net reduce overall healthcare expenditure? You think that the single price which is negotiated is going to be the average is going to be less than the current? Average? Is that why you're saying that? Well, I think that the single pricing system creates greater equality. It provides a mechanism. Don't forget that the single price is overseen in Maryland by a state regulatory commission, a very small body, by the way. Hospitals have to come in and justify their price to this commission. Okay. And so 
It's more like electricity rate uh, regulation, which is done at the state level in every state in this country. It's recognized that utilities are a monopolies in the markets in which they operate. And so that they have to come in and say, here's our capital costs, here's our labor costs, here's our fuel costs, here's our distribution costs, and here's what the price needs to be in order to meet all those costs. And then we'll set a profit of X percent that goes on top of that. Several states had this in the 1970s. Maryland just never got rid of it. Every other state did. This model, the state regulatory model, is one where you can control the rate of growth in pricing by forcing systems to come in and justify what their prices need to be. Number two is that it eliminates a huge amount of administration, which we could call administrative waste. If you've got a whole team of people who are spending half the year negotiating prices on both the insurance company side and on the hospital side, you can replace that with a single set of people on the hospital side or the provider side that their job is to actually institute cost analysis of what's going on inside the hospital. It's one of the hidden secrets. You can talk to the Healthcare Finance Management Association, HFMA. I've gone to their annual meetings a number of times, and they will always quietly admit to you when you ask them the question that they don't have any cost accounting systems inside hospitals, or they have very rudimentary ones. They fill out Medicare cost reports, but this is like checking boxes on a government form. Is that really what it costs to deliver the service? If it is what it really costs to deliver the service, then believe me, that's well, well below what the private sector is currently paying, even if it's a little bit more than what Medicare is paying. So if by forcing their internal staff to focus on cost accounting rather than on negotiating pricing and getting what the market will bear or what their monopoly or semi-monopoly position in the market will allow them to collect, they're going to be forced to say, okay, wow. This is what the prices that we're going to get from the cost review commission. And now that we're looking at what our costs are, where they are, we can begin looking at, okay, if we're going to get that price, how can I deliver my service more efficiently? I mean, another hidden secret in healthcare is, is how poor productivity has been. Yes, we have a labor shortages. It's a labor intensive business, but we use a huge amount of machinery and equipment and all of that. And every one of these areas can be looked at to say, not just get rid of people, but how do I use my people more efficiently? It's a question that's rarely asked in healthcare. And uh, unlike, say, manufacturing, which is that's all they look at because they know they're in a high cost labor environment and they're competing with lower cost labor environments abroad. So they're constantly looking at that question. In healthcare, you almost hear nothing about what they do on that. There are some people who have focused on that question, and you can find them. I'm not saying, but again, this is not the mainstream of the healthcare sector. But that's that would be those are key benefits that you would move to a single pricing system. You're going to have regulatory oversight. You're going to get rid of administrative waste, and you're going to force hospitals to begin looking internally to how that, that they can deliver care efficiently, which is part of becoming more effective as well.
David Schenker in episode 363 talks about this administrative burden and he was suggesting ways to do contracting that could help out here. But as I'm thinking about this, having an all-payer price would solve the root cause of the issue as opposed to trying to figure out how to efficiently solve for the administrative nightmare that currently exists when every payer has a different price for every single code. Actually, Autumn Youngchu talks about this also in the episode with Eric Davis. Just at the amount of errors in billing that every payer having a different price for every code generates. And it's huge dollars, which employers or patients a lot of times wind up on the hook for that are ultimately billing mistakes. So the three things that we've got on our list right now relative to glide paths toward ensuring healthcare inflation doesn't exceed the growth of our GDP so that we can get back into reasonable terrain here and not have it exceed one out of every five dollars is put into healthcare. So the first thing that we talked about is providers being accountable to deliver health. So that's number one. Number two, you had mentioned paying based on value. So PCPs create a lot of value or they can. And then number three, talking about having single price. They are doing this right now in Maryland. Uh, what that effectively does is it not only just keeps the price down because you have very educated people who are doing the negotiation with the hospitals, but also it cuts out a ton of waste. So we've got those three things. I think the main things that I have been trying to focus attention on through my writing over the past decade is this to really look at how we create greater health through removing the incentives that we have for higher volumes and higher prices and trying to create new incentives to deliver better health at lower cost. And I do believe that reforms in our payment system are crucial to that. Thinking in terms of budgets rather than in terms of FIFA service, thinking of putting providers in control of the actual dollars that get spent and putting them at risk. And in, on the final point, uh, the physician payments to really redo the incentives on a physician pay. I didn't mention this earlier, but moving them more towards a salaried position that yes, reflects their skill. Yes, rewards them for both the individual work that they put on to get to the position they're in, the knowledge that they have, but that where the spread, just like we have spread between hospital pricing for one insurer versus another based on how much volume they do, we shouldn't have the kind of spread where some physicians are making seven, six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars a year. And the poor primary care doctor who actually is responsible for the individual patients entire life is only making $250,000 a year. Now, to the average American, it all sounds pretty good, right? But so that kind of spread creates an incentive in the system to keep doing more and more of the expensive stuff because that person needs to justify that they want to make that much money and they can under FIFA service. So I think if we address all of the incentives we have in the system for overutilization, for waste and that ultimately are not the best approaches to delivering better care for average Americans and create new incentives to get us to that point where we deliver better care at lower cost. I think that's uh, what we really need to do. Meryl, besides subscribing to your Substack newsletter, Goose News, 
which we will link to in the show notes. Where else would you direct people who want to learn more about your work? Anybody who wants to Google my name will usually find my latest writings there, although I do post them now on my Substack blog. I did write a book about the drug industry that I think is still relevant. Meryl Guzner, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Stacy, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hey, could I ask you to do me a favor? If you are part of the relentless tribe working hard to transform healthcare in this country, I don't need to tell you that we need as many on our side as we can get. The most vital thing that you could do to help expand the reach of this show is to leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Spotify and or share this show with colleagues or decision makers. Personally, I cannot appreciate it more when I see the reviews and they really count towards our search rankings. Thanks so much for listening.